Hey, everybody. Welcome to Conspiracy the Show. I'm your host, Adam Todd Brown. Joining me as co-host this week, my favorite co-host of all. No co-host. I am by myself. I don't know why I sound so surprised about that. I do this podcast by myself all the time. We have mercifully, for me at least, arrived at the final episode of what has been a damn lengthy exploration into the theory that Jonestown was actually a CIA medical experiment. Personally, I'm convinced. And this episode is going to be about why that is. Seems like a logical way to end things, you know? But first, these episodes have been coming out over a span of what feels like four years now. So let's recap all the stops along the journey so far. The first episode was just a recap of the officially accepted public version of events, as described in the documentary Jonestown Paradise Lost which you can watch on Hulu if you're into government propaganda. The next official episode covered Operation Paperclip, which was the United States initiative that brought thousands of Nazi scientists, researchers, and intelligence agents, and their families, to work for the United States after World War II. That effort led to the creation of both the CIA and the MKUltra program. It also brought a family called the Leightons to the United States. And they have a whole episode of their own. That family was headed up by Dr. Lawrence Layton, who worked on the Manhattan Project and various other U.S. military projects, worked for the government most of his life. His wife, Lisa Layton, worked for the CIA while the family was living in Berkeley, California. Their children, Deborah, Carolyn, and Larry, were all scientists or researchers or medical professionals of some sort. The oldest child, Tom, was a writer. And as discussed on the episode about them, this one family went on to provide a majority of the initial funding, planning, and physical labor that went into launching Jonestown. And they were all part of Jim Jones' inner circle, except for the dad, Dr. Lawrence Layton. To hear history tell it, he was a victim who lost his entire family and most of his money to Jonestown. But if this CIA theory really is correct, the chances of that being the truth are slim to none. It would be one thing if his family also died at Jonestown. That would make for a believable tale. But no, not only did most of them get away, some of them, like Deborah Layton, got away with the full sympathy of the American public. That's convenient, huh? One of the architects and operators of Jonestown went on to become the public face and voice of the victims of Jonestown afterward. Then, on episode four, we talked about what the CIA was getting up to in Guyana when Jonestown was operational. At the exact same time, the CIA was actively recruiting black Americans to move to Guyana and train as mercenaries, Jim Jones is actively recruiting black Americans to move to Guyana to live in a socialist utopia that was actually a slave labor camp. Listen, I know coincidences exist in the world, but I also know there is almost zero chance that that is one of them. So that's where we're at so far. And now let's bring it on home. Honestly, the stuff I just mentioned was enough for me, but there is more. Not only is there more stuff to cover on this episode, but there's way, way more in this book that I just don't have time to get into. Did Harvey Milk get murdered over Jonestown? Maybe read the book and decide for yourself. But uh, trust me when I say this shit is very wild. The book is out there if you want to read it. Google around, you'll find it. I am certainly not going to be the one to link you to a photocopied version of a book that's still available for purchase. I believe that might be a crime. Anyway, let's get to it. The first thing that has me very much sold on the idea that Jim Jones was a CIA asset of some sort are his movements before Jonestown. Like how in 1960, when he went to recruit People's Temple members in Cuba, that's right around the time 
the CIA would have been planning the Bay of Pigs invasion. And do you know what that involved? The short answer is recruiting Cubans to come to the United States to train for an attack on Cuba. So even before Jonestown, we have at least one documented instance of Jim Jones and the CIA being in the same place at the same time, doing relatively the same thing. Did you ever hear anything about a lot of Cubans joining the People's Temple, though? Nope, never happened. Somehow, this one time, his powers as a master persuader, powers so intense, he was allegedly able to swindle an entire family of learned doctors and scientists into giving him everything. This time, those powers didn't work. Okay, I guess I guess that's fine. Or is it possible that he really was there to recruit for the Bay of Pigs operation, and that's why the people he went there to recruit never joined his organization? I don't know. I guess it could go either way. But again, Jim Jones and the CIA doing recruiting in Cuba at the exact same time, just like they were in Guyana, does not strike me as a coincidence. It sounds more like a partnership, honestly. Then there's his trip to Brazil. My God, is this part weird. That happened in 1963. First of all, get a load of what Jim Jones' Wikipedia page says about this trip. Here's a quote. Ultimately, the lack of resources in Belo Horizonte led the family to move to Rio de Janeiro in mid-1963, where they worked with the poor in the favelas. Jones became plagued by guilt for effectively abandoning the civil rights struggle in Indiana and possibly losing what he had tried to build there. End quote. This man was a virulent, racist Nazi criminal. He did not go to Brazil to help, and he did not leave out of a sense of guilt. That is an absurd notion that deserves one of those fake news disclaimers that we sometimes slap on tweets and YouTube videos. Also, you ready for another Nazi twist? Guess who else moved to Brazil in 1961? Joseph Mengele. That's right, and it's not a conspiracy theory. Go look at any biography of the man. He definitely got away. We know where he moved to after he got away, and we even know where he died. And it was not in Nazi Germany. It was in South America. And he moved to Brazil right around the same time Jim Jones moved to Brazil. And if you're unfamiliar, Joseph Mengele was the Nazi in charge of creepy medical and psychological experiments. Is that another coincidence? That the guy who crafted Nazi medical experiments and the guy who it seems like maybe went on to conduct one in Guyana with the help of a family that seems to have some weird Nazi connections of their own, those two just happened to be in Brazil at the exact same time. Totally believable. And then there's what happens next. Despite his own biography's claim that resources were tight in Brazil, he comes back to the United States with a whole bunch of cash. And he immediately starts spending it on improving the lives of black people. Just joking. He used it to move to Ukiah, California, where he took over a hospital. I mean, he kind of took over the entirety of Mendocino County. This is also where the People's Temple first started using welfare offices to recruit new members. But it's what they did at Mendocino State Mental Hospital that really stands out. When I say the People's Temple took it over, I mean they took it over, like Nino Brown taking over the Carter in New Jack City. If you got that reference, let's be friends. Except the People's Temple didn't have to do it through violence or intimidation. Just slowly, over time, someone somewhere decided every employee of that mental hospital should be a People's Temple member. And that's a pretty handy set of circumstances to find yourself in if, say, someone had just tasked you with carrying out a massive medical experiment and you needed to train a bunch of people to help. Reminder, Jonestown didn't just have medical facilities. They had the best medical facilities in Guyana. There were lots of doctors and nurses and technicians for some reason. And the Mendocino State Hospital sure does seem like where they went to train for that work. And this was all happening at the exact same time another questionable government initiative was getting started, that being deinstitutionalization. You know, the thing where the government decided private facilities should handle mental health care 
instead of government-run facilities. By the time the People's Temple left Mendocino County for Guyana, they'd been there for nine years, at which point there were only around 70 patients left at that hospital. Can you guess what happened to those patients? That's right. They were all released into the custody and privacy of the People's Temple. And about a year later, Jim Jones, the Leightons, the now highly trained medical staff, and hundreds of test subjects were on their way to Guyana. But why? What was the point? Well, I'll tell you why. Because it's the next obvious step. That's why. Keep in mind, by this point, we are decades into MKUltra. The CIA had a mountain of data gleaned from all the weird shit we were doing there, plus all that data and all those records we got from Japan and from the Nazis. What are we going to do with it? You use it to conduct a field experiment. MKUltra wasn't about controlling individual people. It was about controlling groups of people. And the only way to know if you're onto something in that regard is to obviously tested on a bunch of people at once. And why in Guyana? Well, if we're talking science reasons, doing it in the seclusion of the jungle means you can eliminate any outside influences that might interfere with the test. There were no books, there were no radios, no television, no contact with the outside world. The only entertainment was the dulcet tones of Jim Jones' voice blaring from speakers at all hours of the day and night, except for the occasional performance from the Jonestown Express, which was the official band of Jonestown. That's a real thing, by the way. But anyway, it was a controlled environment in every way possible, including the required activities at Jonestown. According to a few different survivor accounts, there were three things that were required of everyone there. Weekly physicals, suicide practice, and one night a week, everyone lined up to get one single cookie, hand-delivered by Jim Jones himself. Now, of those three, let's talk about the obvious weird one right up front. Weekly physicals? You thought I was going to say the cookie thing, right? It's called misdirection, babe. But also, that's way too many physicals. Most people, if you're really sticking to your P's and Q's, are hitting a medical physical maybe every six months. Probably more like once a year. Once a week, though? That's beyond a physical. That's monitoring. Which raises the obvious question. What were they monitoring? And don't forget those medical records. There were lots and lots of them at Jonestown, obviously. You don't conduct weekly physicals on hundreds of people without producing a mountain of medical records. And all those medical records vanished. There were still hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash at Jonestown when all the smoke cleared. But the medical records were gone. Now, the reason for the weekly suicide drills is obvious. But what's with those cookies? Well, one thing that's mentioned about those cookies is that the production and distribution of them was tightly controlled. There's actually a story in the Michael Myers book about a girl who helped make them slipping one to her boyfriend, who was a guard at Jonestown. And the two of them get punished for that in a truly unspeakable way. Jim Jones took these cookies really seriously. And why? Because that's almost certainly how they were administering the drugs for this experiment. It wasn't because they were nice. It wasn't because they thought every resident should have a weekly cookie. There's clearly something else behind it. And remember, there were huge stockpiles of the same drugs the government was testing during MKUltra. And no one reports just being fed pills every day. But there was that weekly cookie. There were actually three cookies, but each person only got one. And the reason for that, the explanation given in this book, and one that, given all the stops we've made along this road to get here, sounds as reasonable as any other explanation to me, is that they were testing two different drugs to see which one worked better. So in that case, one group gets one drug, the second group gets the second drug, and Jim Jones' litany of guards and helpers and CIA friends who are just there to observe get regular cookies. They weren't testing what these drugs would do if people were given massive doses all at once. They were testing what would happen if you administered it slowly 
over an extended period of time. Does that sound absurd? Because I'd remind you we're essentially dealing with Nazi science here. Those motherfuckers probably invented UFOs. I think they could wrap their heads around the logistics of spiking cookies with drugs and then keeping track of who took what. And see, that's the other thing. I think we talked on a previous episode about what kind of kid Jim Jones was. For one thing, he was obsessed with Nazis and especially Nazi mind control science. He was also obsessed with evangelical preachers, but not because of Jesus. It was because he wanted to figure out why people followed them and how they made that happen. He was, as the book puts it, the nation's foremost expert on Nazi mind control. And as soon as he set up shop in Indiana, he proved he could wield that control. Next thing you know, he's hanging out in CIA hotspots and turning his cult into a group of trained medical experts. One thing you hear about the CIA all the time is that they barely accept anyone who applies to work there. They don't hire, they recruit. Jim Jones proving to be an effective mind controller at the exact same time the CIA was equally interested in mind control makes him an obvious candidate. And then he goes to Cuba with seemingly no trouble at all at a time when going there was significant trouble. Then he goes to Brazil to maybe pal around with Nazi Germany's preeminent medical and psychological experimenter. Then he goes to Northern California takes over an entire county, including its mental hospital, with little to no resistance before moving on to Guyana at the exact same time the CIA was trying to get people to move to Guyana also. So yeah, those cookies were probably mind-controlled drugs, and Jonestown was almost certainly the next logical step in the MK Ultra project. But we are not done with wild, but also wildly believable theories about the CIA presented in this book. There's also the Congressman Leo Ryan theory. History has painted the Jonestown massacre as something that happened spontaneously in response to the also spontaneous murder of Leo Ryan. No way are our enemies going to let us live now. We killed an American politician. Time to pull the plug. Except what if it wasn't that? For one thing, mass suicide was always how this was going to end, or at least an attempt at mass suicide. They talked about it for years. They practiced it weekly for years, all while slowly dosing their intended targets with MKUltra drugs. And drugs were only half of MKUltra. It actually just kind of dawned on me as I was putting these notes together, but I think I know what they were trying to do specifically. And I understand that the tone of my voice right now makes it seem like I just thought of this on the fly while recording. But no, I'm just doing that for effect. I actually figured this out while I was doing the notes. And this part isn't in the book, but hear me out. One of the most notorious figures in MKUltra was a guy named Ewan Cameron. I think we're supposed to call him Dr. Cameron. He was the very first head of the American-Canadian and World Psychiatric Associations, after all. He was also the pioneer of an especially creepy MKUltra technique called psychic driving. If you ever read anything about the Montreal experiments, which were part of MKUltra, there have been lots and lots of lawsuits filed over them in Montreal over the years. Very well-known story there. That was Dr. Ewan Cameron. And the thing he was doing to people in Montreal was psychic driving as part of the MK Ultra program. And basically, the subject would be put into a drug-induced coma, sometimes for hours, sometimes for days. In a few cases, it went on for weeks, and I think one guy was down for about three months. And while they were in that coma, the doctor in the room would play a series of looped messages meant to reprogram the subject's personality. I think the power of negative thinking would be a good name for it. The secret in reverse. Now, obviously, it's going to take a lot of drugs to keep a person down for that long. And for that and several other reasons, actual psychic driving as it was done in those Montreal doctor's offices, isn't a thing that's going to translate into crowd control without some kind of tweaking. You can't just render all of South Los Angeles unconscious for a month and tell them to sell crack while they're sleeping and expect no one to notice. Wait, I'm getting my CIA-related conspiracies confused, but you get it. So what if that was the experiment? What if Jonestown was meant to take 
what we learned from psychic driving and apply it to people who were drugged but still awake. If you look at it that way, the suicide practice makes a lot more sense. That was the loop they were being fed. Someday, the bad guys will come and we'll have to commit suicide. Constantly, day after day, year after year, all while you're being dosed with MKUltra edibles. The obvious endpoint for that experiment is you ask people to commit suicide and see who goes along. If nothing else, it's going to tell you which of those two drugs work the best. From there, as suggested in the book, you round up all the people who didn't comply and you kill them. That is not a crazy suggestion when you take into account that if all 900 plus people did go along with it, that would have been a rousing success, at least from the standpoint of the people running it. So of course they'd be fine with eliminating the people who didn't comply. What else are they going to do? Let them get out and talk about it? So then after that, you just mark the bodies according to who did and didn't go along willingly. You match that data with your massive archive of medical records. Then you get the fuck out of town and build on what you learned in another jungle, or in a compound in upstate New York, or wherever the hell this went next. And with that, congratulations, CIA. You just pulled off one of the biggest actual scientific mind control field experiments of all time. And the icing on the cake, you maybe get to eliminate one of your biggest foes in the process. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Let's get back to Leo Ryan. I keep mentioning how there were a bunch of high-profile defections that happened before the Jonestown Massacre. These were all high-level people. These were the people getting actual cookies. And conveniently enough, they slowly start disassociating from Jonestown in the months leading up to Leo Ryan's visit. That's why Leo Ryan decided to visit. Deborah Layton, who was one of the highest level members, conveniently escapes at the last minute and starts spreading the news that they're planning a mass suicide at Jonestown. Then a bunch of other defections follow, and all of a sudden, the world is hearing about these evil things happening at Jonestown, and Leo Ryan decides to swing into action. He heads to Jonestown with a gaggle of reporters, defectors, concerned family members, and a couple of aides and assistants. There are a few interesting names who traveled on that plane, but the most interesting is Dick Dwyer, and not just because his name is Dick. His name is also in a notorious 1968 book called Who's Who in the CIA, which is exactly what it sounds like. It was a book written, I believe, by the East German Stasi that listed the names of thousands of alleged CIA agents operatives, and collaborators. His name is also mentioned in another interesting place. At Jonestown, during the massacre, for whatever reason, audio of that entire moment was recorded. I don't know who would need that or for what. And on those tapes, at the start of things, Jim Jones can be heard saying, get Dwyer out of here. Why was Dwyer there? By the time all the carnage started, that entire delegation was supposed to have all been at the airstrip getting shot at. Dick Dwyer also spent a few days showing Leo Ryan slides of Jonestown that made the place seem like the utopia that they claimed it was when the delegation got delayed in Georgetown before being allowed into Jonestown, even though they were on a trip meant to investigate survivor claims of abuse. So if he really was CIA, the fact that he worked that closely with Leo Ryan was a big, big break for the CIA. Because you see, Leo Ryan wasn't just a showman who liked pulling wacky investigative reporting stunts to garner political clout. Remember, this is the guy who basically checked himself in to San Quentin prison for a few weeks to investigate claims of abuse by prison guards. He was that kind of guy. He liked going places to investigate the things people were telling him for himself. But he was also a devout enemy of the CIA. Prior to Jonestown, he'd conducted investigations 
attempting to tie the CIA to both the Symbionese Liberation Army, the group that kidnapped Patty Hearst, and the Unification Church, which is the Moonies. He also co-sponsored a bill called the Hughes-Ryan Amendment that limited the CIA's ability to carry out covert operations by, among other things, making it a requirement that the president be clued in about any covert operations. They also had to get congressional approval before any covert operations could be funded. Now, is that enough reason for the CIA to want someone dead? Yeah, of course it is. Absolutely. Also, you have to keep in mind what point in history we're talking about. Once the Watergate story broke, America was all about finding out what else the government was up to. That's when we found out about MKUltra, prompting the church committee hearings and a whole bunch of calls for the CIA to clean up their act. And all of this is happening right when, if this theory is to be believed, they're about to pull off the field experiment that presents the next logical step in MKUltra, the culmination of all those decades of horrifying research and experiments just up in flames because of one nosy congressman. If Jonestown really was that, it raises an obvious question. Did the Jonestown massacre happen because Leo Ryan was killed? Or was Leo Ryan killed so the Jonestown massacre could happen? Because that would certainly kill two big birds with one stone. You get to see your experiment through to the end, even if it's a little early, and one of your biggest foes goes away. One thing to take into account when it comes to this particular theory, they were practicing for the suicide drill for like five years, right? We know that. Now ask me when they bought the potassium cyanide to carry out that mass suicide. They bought it dot, 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 two days before Leo Ryan arrived. That detail comes from the official government report about Jonestown, for the record. It's restated in this book, but that is the government's own information. Even though this was a thing they'd been practicing for years, under the premise that it might be necessary to do it at a moment's notice, they didn't actually prepare for it until right before Leo Ryan arrived. What a coincidence. There have been so many of those so far. If for some reason it sounds crazy that the CIA would go to these kinds of lengths to protect their dynasty, let me run a quick timeline by you. For my money, this is one of the most underrated and underexplored, not even a conspiracy theory, just set of circumstances. It works like this. For right around one year, from 1976 to 1977, George H.W. Bush served as director of the CIA. Even though his stint was short, as we've already discussed, it happened during a time of all sorts of upheaval and uncertainty at the CIA, especially the part where the Hughes-Ryan Amendment dictated that they report their covert actions to the president. You see where this is going? What happens one year after George H.W. Bush takes over as CIA director, he quits so he can run for vice president of the United States. First CIA director to hold that office, by the way. First to run. And there was lots of concern at the time over a CIA chief coming even sort of close to the presidency. Because again, Watergate, MKUltra, the church committee hearings all happening at this exact same time, and just as if by magic, the CIA decides to run for vice president. And then what happens next? Ronald Reagan is very nearly assassinated. Given what we know about the CIA's desperation to stay in business at the time, and their history of being a-okay with political assassinations, is it really so crazy to suggest that maybe they wanted Reagan dead, so one of their own could be the president? that they had to report their shenanigans to? Again, too crazy? Because we're talking about the studio that brought you MKUltra. I think it's not crazy at all. Anyway, let's get back to Jonestown. Like I've said before, there is lots and lots of information in this book. Too much for me to devote podcast space to all of it. So I'm going to wrap things up by running through some of the details of the Jonestown massacre itself and the final weeks of Jonestown that I think point to this being a CIA-run medical experiment. I've already talked a little about the defections, but it's really hard to overstate how completely and totally the upper level white people got the fuck out of there before the killing started. 
It's not just that all those defections were high-level members. There's also the strange case of Lisa Layton, the mother of the Layton family, former CIA analyst. Deborah Layton gave Leo Ryan a letter to take to Lisa Layton, and when he got there, he was informed that Lisa Layton died and was buried somewhere at Jonestown, but no one remembered where. And she was one of the highest level people at Jonestown. She didn't even have to sleep inside Jonestown. She slept in the guest house full time. She mattered at Jonestown. And then when she died, they just buried her and forgot where? Sure, sure, sure. That doesn't sound like the cover story of someone who faked their death at all. And then there are all of the high-level members who just conveniently happened to be at dentist appointments or basketball tournaments or on the official Jonestown boat when the massacre happened. Like Temple aide Charles Beekman a white former Marine who ran the temple's thrift store, but conveniently closed it a week before the massacre. All of that's beneficial for two reasons. One, it keeps them from being killed, obviously, but also it adds to the story of this being a spontaneous thing prompted by the death of Leo Ryan, as opposed to it being a cover for the murder of Leo Ryan. But hey, maybe the fact that all of those early defectors were white and part of Jones' inner circle, is just another in the long, long list of coincidences that have popped up in this story. And then there's the death count. There's lots of weirdness there. But if we're talking suspicious escapes and defections, it's worth noting that for most of its history, the population of Jonestown was said to be between 11 to 1,200 people. You remember how many people died? Just over 900. So where are those hundreds of other people? Before you even say it, there is absolutely no way a place that kept this kind of control over its population, including subjecting them to weekly physical exams, would just lose count of how many people were there. If they were saying it was 11 to 1,200, they knew how many people were there. This isn't a clerical error. Hundreds of people got away, and no one has ever explained how or who they were. Were they all just lucky survivors who decided to never, ever share their story with anyone? Yeah, probably, but it's most likely because their side of the story is very different than the story you'd hear from people who died. Then there are all the suspected or confirmed CIA operatives who were on the scene. We already did an entire episode about how the CIA itself was very much in Guyana at the time. For example, the U.S. Embassy Chief of Mission, who, when asked about his CIA affiliation after Jonestown, said he could, quote, neither confirm nor deny. So that's basically their way of saying, ha, you got me. Then there's the entire Layton family, who an entire previous episode was dedicated to. Phil Blakey, who married into the Layton family and who oversaw the construction of Jonestown. He was rumored to be British intelligence. Or how about Tim Stowen? He was a People's Temple lawyer. East Germany certainly thought he was CIA, seeing as how they arrested him in the early 60s after he was caught photographing sensitive military installations near the Berlin Wall. They held him for nine days before deporting him back to the United States. But the actions of Dick Dwyer on the day of the Jonestown Massacre are the weirdest. The same Dick Dwyer named in that Who's Who in the CIA book. For one thing, when everyone arrived at the airstrip, he reportedly slipped back into town and before anyone even noticed he was gone, returned with a Guyanese constable who, coincidentally enough, went on to provide the shotgun that killed Leo Ryan. When the guards who did the actual shooting arrived, Dwyer and this constable, who has somehow never been identified, approached them, talked for a bit, and then the constable handed over his shotgun, and he and Dick Dwyer just back away. Dick Dwyer is also the one who suggested that everyone boarding the planes be patted down and stripped of any weapons, which probably sounded like a good idea at first, but not so much once everyone's being shot at and no one can shoot back. Then there's Larry Layton. He was the only person who was ever tried for any Jonestown-related crimes. After he shot a couple people, someone wrestled his gun away and then delivered that gun and Larry Layton not to the Guyanese authorities, but to Dick Dwyer. Also, during the entirety of the airstrip shooting, There was a team of Guyanese soldiers at the end of the airstrip who just watched but never intervened. When someone from the group who was being shot at ran up to them and asked if they'd help 
or at least loan him a weapon. They replied that they couldn't intervene because this was, quote, Americans killing Americans. But after the shooting stopped, they did agree to shelter the seriously wounded, but only after being approached by Dick Dwyer. So that's all weird. And the last thing I want to talk about that I believe also points to some kind of government cover-up at Jonestown is everything that happened afterward. For starters, we almost immediately learn that Jackie Spire, an aide to Leo Ryan at the time, who was shot five times but survived, and later went on to serve in Congress, which she's still doing now, she said this to Leo Ryan while they were still at Jonestown. There is no question in my mind that there is mind control being exercised here. Also, as has been mentioned before, the body count is highly suspicious. At first, it was announced as around 300 dead, then it climbed to around 400, and then it eventually reached 900 plus. I think the exact number is like 903. And the explanation for that discrepancy was that some of the bodies fell on top of others. In other words, 300 bodies fell in such a way as to disguise another 600 bodies? Maybe if each body fell on top of two children, that explanation could work, but there weren't enough kids at Jonestown for that to be the case. The speculation there is that the people who tried to flee into the jungle were eventually rounded up and murdered. Doesn't sound that crazy when you take into account that the majority of those who died were murdered by way of injections in the back. We know the murders happened, we just don't know who did it, or if the part where people fled and were rounded up is definitely true, or if they just resisted right there on the scene and were killed immediately. The subsequent increases in the body count and the lame excuses for it, though, I think do make the roundup and murder theory seem a little more believable. The arrangement of the bodies was odd, also. They were all lined up next to each other in a very orderly fashion. It's not because they just happened to die that way. Cyanide poisoning does not work that way. You contort and flop around. There's also no suggestion from any survivor account that the people who did commit suicide were then instructed to stand next to each other. No, those bodies were moved. Was it so they could mark the bodies of those who did and did not commit suicide? Yeah, most likely, and probably also to make the mass suicide story look more believable. That one detail, the positioning of the bodies, was enough to make some people suspect CIA involvement, like activist comedian Dick Gregory, who said that exact thing in the days following the massacre. Either way, those bodies didn't fall into the neat formation they were in when Guyanese officials arrived on the scene. Speaking of those officials, one of them was the country's chief medical examiner, Dr. C. Leslie Mutu. He was able to conclude that the majority of the dead had been murdered, as opposed to willingly drinking poison. But also the United States not only refused to send additional medical help to the scene so the situation could be investigated more thoroughly, they also refused to let any private offers of help come through, like the one that came from Dr. Robert Stein in Chicago. He offered to help. U.S. government wouldn't let him. In fact, the State Department's initial idea for how to handle the mountain of dead bodies was to dig a massive hole and bury them all together right there in Guyana. These are Americans we're talking about. Americans with families back home who loved them. And the official government response at first was, bury them and leave them there. Does that seem normal? We didn't send an official delegation to Jonestown until four days after the killings happened. And that entire time, all of those bodies were just rotting in the hot South American sun. The first thing the American delegation did upon arriving was to bayonet all the bodies so they didn't explode from the internal gases building up inside them. Also, they couldn't do much because the government didn't send any medical supplies. This is a quote. I didn't even have a pocket knife, no equipment, and no preservatives for specimens. That's Dr. Lynn Cook, one of the two medical examiners sent to Jonestown. So that alone made identifying the bodies difficult, as did the fact that all identifying documents and any politically sensitive materials were removed from the bodies before examiners arrived. And speaking of weird things that happened immediately after the tragedy, the FBI was denied entry into Guyana by the Forbes Burnham administration. The CIA was allowed in, military personnel were allowed in to remove the bodies, independent reporters and researchers were allowed in, but the FBI was not. That reminds me of the Finders scandal. 
Go back and listen to that episode if you haven't. Everyone from the FBI to DC Metro Police to fucking Customs and Border Patrol wanted to investigate that group. But all the investigations got shut down once it got kicked up to the CIA. The nearly complete and total lack of an investigation into this is a huge red flag. The nearly complete and total lack of an investigation into this is also a huge red flag. As I've mentioned so many times already, only one person was ever tried or convicted for any of this. But not just that, no one was ever even subpoenaed or interviewed, including the men who killed Leo Ryan. We knew who they were. We knew their names. The government never even tried to apprehend or talk to them. Larry Layton was tried on conspiracy charges. So who did he conspire with? He was the only defendant. A government cover-up is the only way any of that makes sense. And then there's Joe Holsinger. I've mentioned before that in the immediate aftermath of Jonestown, the question of whether or not this was a CIA thing was a very mainstream talking point. Which shouldn't surprise anyone, because again, this was about four years after the world found out about MKUltra. And one of the most high-profile proponents of the CIA Jonestown theory was Joe Holsinger, administrative assistant to and good friend of Leo Ryan. His suspicions were aroused almost immediately when the White House called to tell him Ryan was murdered. When he asked who told him that, they said it was the CIA. So if nothing else, that's the White House itself confirming the CIA was at least there. Also, one of the problems the delegation faced upon reaching the airstrip was that there were no working radios for them to use to call for help. That meant there were three possibilities for where that message from the CIA to the White House came from. The plane that managed to escape early with Jonestown resident Monica Bagby, the radio inside the disabled plane at the end of the runway, or the radio inside Jonestown. That means either Monica Bagby was also CIA, or the pilot of her plane was CIA, or that the CIA was watching from the disabled plane that the Guyanese military was guarding at the end of the runway, or the CIA was still in Jonestown after Leo Ryan died. Whatever the case, Joe Holsinger was suspicious. Even more so when he received his boss's briefcase after it was sent back from Jonestown. He said, for starters, the clasps looked like they had been removed and reattached, and also the tape recorder that Ryan took with him to Guyana was missing. The Black Panthers were actually the first group to publicly assert that the CIA did Jonestown, mostly for all the reasons we've discussed in this series— and Joe Holsinger did a whole lot to try and give their theory a more mainstream voice. But he took it a step further by publicly accusing Dick Dwyer and U.S. Embassy official Richard McCoy, Temple member Tim Carter, and airstrip pilot Guy Spence, all of being CIA agents or informants. He was also the first to publicly suggest that Leo Ryan was set up to be murdered because of his support for the Hughes-Ryan Amendment. And that's the story of how the CIA was taken down over their involvement of Jonestown. <laughs> Just joking. Obviously. Again, aside from Larry Layton going to jail for a while, nothing ever came of any of this. The government conducted an investigation that was based mostly on interviews with the State Department, the CIA, and Jim Jones' own words. And unsurprisingly, the conclusion they came to was that there was no U.S. government involvement in what happened at Jonestown. And that was pretty much the end of the story. But hey, at least Jim Jones died, right? At least there's some justice in that. But did he? Come on. Do you think he really died that day? I believe that exactly as much as I believe that Hitler was somehow the only high-level Nazi who didn't make it to Argentina. Meanwhile, Hitler's personal pilot made the last flight out of Berlin before it fell. But Hitler definitely wasn't on that plane. No way. Sure, his body was never found, but still, if he got out, someone would tell us, right? No, of course they wouldn't. They'd tell you he died, especially if your country decided to team up with his regime after World War II ended, which we totally did. I feel the same way about Jim Jones. He wasn't crazy. He wasn't delusional. He was just a truly evil master criminal. So much so that despite a lifetime of criminality, he was only arrested a single solitary time in Los Angeles, 
1973. And that's a really important moment because it marks the one point in history where the United States gets his fingerprints on file. Good thing, too, because despite dental records being the obvious way to go, we eventually used fingerprints to identify Jim Jones' body. But what if that wasn't Jim Jones that got arrested that night? Not only is it well known that Jim Jones traveled with body doubles, this book even names a few of them. Wayne Patila, Harold Cordell, and Mike Prokes. That's a big part of why he always wore those gigantic sunglasses. Way easier to get body doubles past people when huge sunglasses are an iconic part of your look. So with Jim Jones being so good at crime, you would expect that his 1973 arrest either involved some very bad luck or some very good police work. But nope, he was arrested for masturbating in front of an undercover cop in a movie theater bathroom, but, but, but wait, approximately two weeks after his son was harassed by that same undercover cop in the same bathroom in that same movie theater. In other words, Jim Jones knew there was a cop working in that bathroom, and he made a conscious decision to go to that theater and jerk off in front of the guy and get arrested. Does that sound like the work of a master criminal? Or does it sound like someone who's going out of their way to get arrested? Because the suggestion in this book is that it wasn't Jim Jones who got arrested, but one of his body doubles pretending to be Jim Jones. Once he was booked under Jim Jones' identity, his fingerprints were on file as being those of Jim Jones. And it was those LAPD fingerprints that were eventually used to identify the corpse that the U.S. Embassy said they were, quote, awfully convinced, end quote, was Jim Jones. But they couldn't say for sure because, again, it had been rotting in the sun for four days. Do you know how they got his fingerprints, by the way? His body was so decomposed an FBI agent had to remove Jim Jones' fingertips and put them over a pair of gloves and do the fingerprint identification that way. Also worth noting, no autopsy ever done on Jim Jones' body. Speaking of that, have I mentioned exactly how Jim Jones died? I think there's some belief out there that he committed suicide, but no, he was shot behind the ear, Bobby Kennedy style. History has blamed that on a disgruntled temple member, but that's never been proven and that temple member has never been identified. So what do we think? Jim Jones, a man with an army of security around him, finally gets taken out by his followers when they are at their absolute weakest and actively being forced to drink poison while surrounded by men with guns, keeping them from fleeing to the jungle. In that moment, someone got to Jim Jones finally. Okay, I guess I guess that's fine, maybe, but I think it's way more likely that the person who was arrested in Los Angeles and the body that was eventually identified as Jim Jones were one and the same, but that neither of them were actually Jim Jones. That's the theory in the book, and man, I know it sounds crazy, but again, it's the only way that arrest in Los Angeles makes any sense. And I know someone will leave a comment, oh, you can't explain the actions of crazy people, man. Jim Jones wasn't crazy. He wasn't delusional. He wasn't afraid of the CIA. That is all cover story. Jim Jones was a criminal, and he was great at it. He was a meticulous criminal. He was not a jerk-off in a movie theater bathroom in front of a cop kind of criminal. There was more to that arrest than Jim Jones wanting to beat off in front of police. And I know that seems like a long con, seeing as how it happened five years before the Jonestown massacre, but that's only if your assumption is that Jim Jones didn't know Jonestown was eventually going to end that way. But he did. He told people that all the time. And he made his followers practice for it. If he knew that was coming and knew he wanted to get away after it happened, getting a body double's fingerprints on record as your own makes perfect sense. And he did privately tell a bunch of people he had no plans of dying during that mass suicide. He went so far as to say he was going to escape by sea. And with that in mind, here's a 1981 quote from Joe Holsinger. The more I investigate the mysteries of Jonestown, the more I'm convinced there is something sinister behind it all. There is no doubt in my mind that Jones had very close CIA connections. At the time of the tragedy, the temple had three boats in the water off the coast. The boats disappeared shortly afterwards. Remember... 
Brazil is a country Jones was very familiar with. He is supposed to have had money there, and it is not too far from Guyana. My own feeling is that Jones was ambushed by CIA agents who then disappeared in the boats. But the whole story is so mind-boggling that I'm willing to concede he escaped with them. End quote. That's from an article published in the UK publication, The Globe. It also included a quote from a Guyanese official. Here it goes. A lot of people here believe Jones had a body double who died at Jonestown and that Jones himself is still alive. End quote. But who knows? We'll probably never know. Personally, I think the idea that someone as criminally inclined as Jim Jones would even put himself in a position to be killed in that moment is unlikely. But hey, Decide for yourselves, America. I know I've talked about how much I hate when conspiracy theory podcasts end with that line, but only when I know they're withholding information that would make the conspiracy they're pushing seem a lot less believable. I don't think I did that here. There's just so much more to this book that if I covered every page of it, this podcast would be nothing but Jonestown for like another two or three months. Again, whether you want to pay for it or not, the book can be found. Go find it and read it. I think it makes a pretty compelling case. Anyway, oh my God, I'm so glad to be done talking about Jonestown. I have no idea what we're going to talk about next week. Hopefully something involving puppies or clouds or sunny days. I don't know. I mean, it certainly won't be. This is a very dark podcast. I will concede that. I mean, we try to keep it light sometimes. We usually fail, but it's always a valiant failure. I would argue. Anyway, don't think too hard about Jim Jones. You know, we got through this. Just let it go. What are you going to do? Bring the CIA to justice? Nah, never going to happen. Uh, do I have anything to plug? No, I mean, patreon.com slash unpops, unpopsnetwork.supercast.tech. You can get two bonus episodes of Conspiracy the Show every month, and there's no ads on the free episodes. So, uh... Go look into that if you're so inclined. And I think that's it. Let's get out of here. Adam, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. We love you. <laughs> <laughs>